So like, for example, let's talk about the tying channel system. Like, how do we understand what the system is? For example, we say the lung. What does the lung do? We say it governs qi. And we know that through respiration, like moving qi outwards and downwards helps regulate the movement of qi outwards and downwards. At the same time, we say that the, the lung channel, like Dr. Warren loves to say, it governs the rhythms of the body. How does it govern the rhythms? It's probably also through its functions of respiration. Or like uh, Dr. Ron would have patients and they would have like um, heart palpitations and sometimes he would not use the heart channel. But instead, if he found a change at lung nine and he thought it was related to the lung channel, he might just use lung nine to treat the heart palpitations. And that's related to the lungs uh, relationship with regulating the rhythms of the body. I'm Michael Max, and this is Geological. You know, it's kind of an old saw in our business that we learn from our patients. And usually I've taken that to mean that we learn from either our successes, if we're paying attention, or from our failures, which usually means we haven't been paying attention. Sometimes though, a patient will say something and it completely stops me in my tracks. I mean, it totally stops the internal dialogue in my head. I catch myself in a moment of uh, surprise. I don't know if that's the right word, but it's definitely a moment that causes me to pause. And I had one of those moments the other day. A patient of mine who had been on a whole collection of medications for blood sugar, for pain, for depression, you're probably familiar with these kind of lists. She came in after a not short stay in the hospital for some completely inconclusive testing. And here's something you might not know. I didn't. When patients go into the hospital, they're usually taken completely off most of their medications. That's not something that I was aware of. You know, a lot of times we hear that you're supposed to titrate down on things, but often people go cold turkey when they take them into the hospital. So anyway, by the time I saw her, she'd been off the antidepressant for two weeks and off the blood sugar meds as well. And here's the interesting thing. Her blood sugar was better without the medication, much more stable. And while there were some feelings at times of anxiety, it was totally in line with what you would expect if you just spent a week plus in the hospital and nothing to show for it except some shrugged shoulders and too much jello. But here's what got me. As we dug into it a bit about how she'd been feeling and how the issues that brought her into my office are resistant to biomedical diagnosis and what all that can do to your state of mind, she says this, depression and struggle are not the same. Did you get that? Can you catch the nuance here? Notice how this person does not conflate difficulties with depression. That there can be difficult feelings, but they are in line with what's actually unfolding in life. And then they become part of the landscape. It's something to be included, something to be worked with, not something to be medicated away. I hear things like this from patients, and for me, it's a sign of deep health. They might be struggling with something that's difficult, maybe even something that's life-threatening. But that kind of presence to oneself, that recognition that they are in a difficult time, and difficult times are not something to medicate away, but rather something to be engaged with, with a kind of willingness. Wow, you know, for me it's a reminder that a person's zheng qi can be strong, even as they're dealing with complex and troublesome issues. You'll probably not find a definition of Jung Chi in our books on medicine that describe this kind of situation. But, you know, I think it's something that you have to learn from your patients. 
And I've got a word here from my buddy, Jason Robertson. Hello, this is Jason Robertson, co-author of Applied Channel Theory in Chinese Medicine with my teacher, Wang Juyi. I have some insights into palpation and an area that I find very useful in checking for low back pain. And I'll say more about that a bit later. These conversations come to you through the generous support of our sponsors and members. All the sponsors here provide helpful products or services that you'll find beneficial in your clinical work. Worried that an EMR is too complex for you? Jane has friendly and knowledgeable support. Mayway Herbs is celebrating the 55th year of their family business. You're invited to make use of their vast library of resources. Are you concerned about the health of Mother Earth? AccuFast Needles is doing something about that. You can too. And later in the show, Ancestral Sturman offers up a sinew treatment, and the folks at Blue Poppy have something special to share as well. Do be sure to visit the sponsors page on the Geological website to take advantage of all the special offers our terrific sponsors have for listeners of the podcast. I don't know about you, but sometimes I take a step back and marvel at my acupuncture needles. I mean, they're the world's simplest medical tool, a sharpened wire and a handle. That's it. And with this simple tool, hundreds of health conditions can be resolved. I love it. What I didn't love was the amount of packaging waste I generated at the end of the day. But that has now changed too. Ever since I switched to AccuFast Earth-Friendly Needles, I reduced my packaging waste by 90%. Not only are they a great needle, but the folks at AccuFast plant a tree for every two boxes of needles I use in the clinic. By switching to AccuFast Needles, you'll be helping patients, planting trees, and joining a community of practitioners changing the world. Like our simple needle, being a part of this solution, it's simple too. Visit AccuFastNeedles.com slash geological to learn how. Hi folks, I'm Yvonne Lau, president of Mayway Herbs. Our family business turns 55 this year, and we wouldn't have gotten this far without the love and support of our community. We're truly grateful and promise you that we'll continue to work hard to support you and your practice. Please visit Mayway.com to find the perfect Pumsar brand formula or formulate your own in our dispensary. Our site also has lots of articles, videos, and herbal recipes for you to explore. And tune into our podcast, Chinese Medicine Matters, for insightful discussions on all things TCM. Learn about treatment strategies and powerful herbal remedies. As we welcome the month of May, our focus is on women's health. Our newsletter articles and podcast episodes this month will highlight different aspects and unique challenges women face. So subscribe or tune in. And if you're a practitioner, get a discount on our women's health formulas this month. Just visit Mayway.com. This season and every season, trust Mayway Herbs for your health and wellness needs. And thank you for supporting Real Chinese Medicine. I love how technology can help to automate my office. And I want to share with you my favorite tool for doing so, Jane. Jane is a clinic management software in EMR with a human touch. Whether you're switching your software or going paperless for the first time, The Jane team knows that the onboarding process can feel a little overwhelming. That's why with Jane, you don't just get software, you get a whole team. Included in every Jane subscription is their award-winning customer support available by phone, email, and chat whenever you need it, even Saturdays. 
You can also book a free account setup consultation to review your account and ensure you feel confident about going live. If you're interested in making the switch to Jane, head to jane.app/switch to book a one-on-one demo with a member of their support team. And be sure to mention the code Geological at the time of sign up for a one-month grace period on your new Jane account. Hey, everybody. I've got John Chang with me, John Chang from Beijing, China. John was a longtime student of Dr. Wang Jui. And unlike many of us who first learned a TCM-style acupuncture, Dr. Wang was John's primary influence. We're sitting down today for a discussion that touches on his apprenticeship with Dr. Wang, along with how he uses palpation in his clinical work and his involvement with years of videos and lectures and patient treatments that they recorded over the years with Dr. Wang. John, Huaning Dao, Chiological. Welcome to Chiological. Thanks, Michael. It's great to finally have this discussion, this conversation. I know. And I'm in St. Louis. You're in Beijing. Thanks to the internet, we're just hanging out and having a cup of tea. It's phenomenal. Yeah. And it sounds like you're right beside me, <laughs> which is crazy. <laughs> you know, I'm a geek for sound. And uh, fortunately, there's some pretty good tools that are mostly reliable these days. So lucky <laughs> for us. Yeah, definitely. Hey, what, what's Beijing like right now? We had some heavy rain the past few days, and it's it's tons of rain, but it all cleared up. Blue skies, like perfect sunlight. It's not that hot. It's amazing. It's amazing right now. The past few days. On occasion, you see a blue sky in Beijing. It is a, it is a wonder, isn't it? It is. You know, in the in the past winter, like the government did something amazing with the pollution that they that we had blue skies for like three or four months straight. Like just clear blue what? skies, like perfect weather. Like was, sometimes I was comparing like the air quality to other like cities like Paris or London, and it was sometimes better than those cities. How did they pull that off? Well, it's a sad story, but they um, and around the surrounding uh, villages around Beijing, a lot of people usually use coal heating. So they uh, got rid of the coal heating and changed it to natural gas which is great. So like there's less pollution. But then what happened is I think they ran out of supplies for natural gas. So then some people in the villagers were like freezing throughout the winter. But for people in Beijing, we're like, oh, this is amazing. But then we always like added another sentence, but it's too bad. You know, it's terrible what's happening in the villages. Yeah, yeah. But they stopped that project. They stopped like trying to do that. So maybe next year I'll get, once again, all the, you know, the facilities set up, they'll be a bit better. But they, you know, they've done so much in the city too, just like stopping like in the hutongs they used to have those coal heaters um, they stopped those too so everyone has electric heating now it was amazing winters like phenomenal okay well anyway man it's been a while since i've been to beijing we can catch up about that later let's let's get into this here so we all have some kind of inciting event or experience that somehow brought chinese medicine to our attention i'm curious to know what yours was I'm trying. I've been thinking about that since, like, you know, you we've been attached. Like, I started thinking about, like, how did I know about Chinese medicine? Like, how was I exposed to it? Or because I grew up in a small town in Canada, just near Toronto, about 40 minutes away from Toronto by car. At the time, like, very few Chinese people in our town. Like in our school, my brother and I were the only Chinese kids there. I wasn't exposed to too much of Chinese culture aside from with my my grandparents and my, I guess, obviously my parents too. 
but the only thing we knew when we we're growing up was just like Chinese food. Like that was the only thing we knew about, you know, Chinese culture is just driving every weekend to like the neighboring city. There's this city there called Markham. So we'd go there every weekend and that was our like going to have this great Cantonese dinner. That was our best meal of the week every week for my childhood. So I didn't know much about it, but then, but my dad is a Western medical doctor and he was interested in acupuncture. So I think he had studied acupuncture in Taiwan for about a month. Like he did one of those probably like crash courses, like 200 hours of like medical acupuncture. Or, and then he went back to Canada and started uh, using acupuncture in his clinical practice too. So he actually used me as a guinea pig for a while. But I didn't, I forgot about that until like maybe just a few months ago. I remember once my dad also, he, he was with all these other Chinese Canadian doctors They had his own little uh, medical, like a little association of Chinese Canadian doctors. And then once they invited a, a doctor from Russia, a Chinese medical doctor from Russia to give a lecture on Chinese medicine. And my dad brought me along. How, how old were you at that time? Maybe 12. I just remember this maybe like a few months ago too. I was just like, oh, I totally forgot about that. My dad said a Russian doctor says so a Russian doctor. So I was expecting, you know, like, you know, like a Russian guy, you know? And then we, we show up to this room and like, I guess someone's clinic and it was just a Chinese guy. I was like, what? <laughs> what? <laughs> so I guess he now, like I didn't, I didn't click in until maybe now that I've been in China, that he's probably a, someone from the mainland who went to Russia to work as a Chinese medical doctor. Yeah. Russia's not that far away from there. Yeah. 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 So then he, he'd give this lecture on acupuncture and he did like some massage therapy. And then he did that kind of like the banfai, like the cracking the neck stuff. Mm-hmm. And then like, he was like, any volunteers for this? And then no one put up their hands. And my dad was like, you go ahead. And he just pushed me to the front. <laughs> I just ran the doctor. Just, I was like, what the hell? What's going on? And he just said that cracking thing on my neck. So that's my only exposure to uh, Chinese medicine. Uh-huh. No, well, no wonder you suppress that memory. <laughs> yeah. And then uh, I guess, I think growing up in Canada, there are two things. There's one thing I, because, you know, I a lot of family members, like my dad and my grandmother, both medical doctors. So part of me was when I was growing up was thinking about becoming a medical doctor. But then there's also, I was influenced by my, my grandfather, who's from Shanghai. And he, when we were growing up, he'd always tell us these fascinating stories about China. So there's always a part of me that wanted to get back to my roots and just come to China, travel, like learn the language. Because it always felt like something was missing, like especially like growing up in a small town. You always feel like you're not really part of that community. Right. Now, did you guys speak Chinese at home? Did you pick up Chinese as you were a kid or did that come later? My mom is, she grew up in Taiwan and Taipei, uh, but her parents are from Beijing. And then my dad is from Shanghai. So he grew up speaking Shanghainese and he moved to Hong Kong. So he speaks Cantonese and Chinese. My mom was here. So at home, like my mom would sometimes speak to us in a mixture of Chinese and uh, Mandarin and English. Well, my dad would just speak to us in, in English. So my brother and I, we just got into the habit of just speaking to them in English and then listening to my mom sometimes speaking to, to us in very simple Mandarin, like, did you eat today? Or how's your poo? She would ask, actually ask us that on a daily basis. Of course. <laughs> yeah. That's a Chinese mother for you. Yeah. <laughs> what took you to China? Did you go to study medicine or you were just going to like go check it out? Yeah, I just finished university in Canada and then... I was tired of school. I was just like, I want to get out. I, want, I was like, for about five years, I was just dreaming of going to China. Like I was just waiting for that time to finish university and just go to China. I remember my grandfather, the one I was talking about, who would tell us all these stories about his childhood in Shanghai. He was like, why are you going back to China? Like, why are you going there? He's like, I left China. 
like to set up this life for you guys. Yeah. I went to Nanjing, studied Chinese, taught some English on the side, and I just loved it. I just loved being in China. What year was that? That was 2002. Okay. So you're Nanjing, you're studying Chinese. How'd you get to Beijing? Yeah, that's a good question. I had some friends in Nanjing and they all moved to Beijing. And then because my uh, grandparents are originally, my other grandparents, my maternal grandparents are originally from Beijing. So I have some relatives there that I'd never met. And there's a, a draw to Beijing just because everyone said, if you want to learn Chinese, you should go to Beijing. Like it's like, you should go to Beijing because they speak the best. Yeah. Well, if, if you want to chang Beijing hua. Yeah, yeah. If you want the little, yeah. Arr, if you want to, if you want to, if you want to talk like a pirate, go to Beijing. Yeah, yeah. yeah. I didn't know what I was getting myself into. I was like, okay, Beijing, sure. So I went there and I loved it. Like I fell in love with this city. It's uh, it's an amazing city. It is, isn't it? Yeah. I used to like ride my bike from like Jingshan Park, like the Gulo area, the Drum Tower area, to the Forbidden City. Like right beside the Forbidden City, there's that park, the um, the Zhongshan Park. I love that bike ride, just like pass through all these old like architectures dating back to like the Qing Dynasty or Ming Dynasty, like the Forbidden City and like the Jingshan Park, Beihai, like Hohai, like all those places. I loved it. When I was living there, my reward for working hard with studying is on Sunday afternoons, I would go get myself lost somewhere. Where was your favorite place to go to? I mean, I would just go to different places. I'd like look at the map and go, where have I not been? And I would just like ride there directly and then kind of like wander around to get myself a little bit confused and then start riding back in what I thought was the direction of home and stop and continually ask people for directions as a way to practice my Chinese. Here's what I learned. A lot of people in Beijing have a really crappy sense of direction. Yeah. And they'd be like, you want to go where? And they'd either say, I don't know where that is, which might mean they don't know, or, oh my God, there's a foreigner and I'm terrified. Or they would just tell me anything to make me go away, <laughs> right? So they give me like, oh, well, you go over here and it's over there and over there. And sometimes I'd be like, no, that's like totally wrong. <laughs> but uh, <laughs> it, was, it was always a good adventure anyway. What was your favorite uh, district to walk around in? Yeah, that whole Hohai area. Just like getting and, lost uh, in the Hutongs. And, and just going and getting lost in the hutongs. I mean, I would just like head out to hutongs and take photographs and just and just wander around. Oh, yeah. There was an area south of uh, Tiananmen. Oh, yeah. Tiananmen area. Right. And, and it was like south of it. I forget the name of it, but it was it was old. It was like old. Right. And, and I would just go wander around in there. And then, you know, talking to Jason, remember he mentioned a book, uh, Midnight in Beijing. Oh, yeah, 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 yeah. Right, which I read. Fascinating story of a horrific murder. And it turned out that that area that I like to wander around in, it was it was sort of close to where that book happened. Oh, that's amazing. So, yeah, but I would just, I mean, I would just wander around to anywhere. I would, you know, the whole thing was just, you know, phenomenal. I mean, Beijing's huge. And, and I'm going to put in a quick plug for Jason's book, not only because it's got great stuff about acupuncture. But because he talks about his wanderings around Beijing as well in that book. I mean, you'll get a great tour of Beijing at the turn of the century from uh, Lao Wai's point of view. It's pretty good. Yeah, definitely, definitely. What year were you living in Beijing? Uh, I was in Beijing like 2002 to 2003. I think I left in the early part of 2004 or something like that. Oh, that's when I just came to – I think I came to Beijing in 2004. Yeah, that, that's when I was there. And then, and then I was back there again for a few months and then uh, – you know, back to the States. So 
But I ended up with a wife in the deal, so it, it all worked out. <laughs> yeah, that's perfect. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. I met her in China years ago. Anyway, tell us about how you got involved with Dr. Wang and got involved in medicine. So around that time, I think it was 2005, 2006, around that time, I'd been learning uh, Tai Chi. So through that, it also got me deeper into Chinese culture. Like I was saying earlier, I was interested in studying medicine. But then the longer I stayed in China, I started thinking, why not? try Chinese medicine. I don't know why I came up with that thought, but it seemed like it's a good blend of like learning about Chinese culture and blending some form of medicine. Around that time, I was just, I just had a roommate and I was just telling her about these, this idea of possibly studying Chinese medicine. And her first week in Beijing, she ended up knowing more people than me. She was like a very outgoing person. So it turns out like she ended up meeting a person who was studying with Dr. Wang and they became very good friends. So she was like, oh, you should study with my, meet my, my friend's teacher. Dr. Wong. And I, did, I was like, oh, sure. The person who introduced me to Dr. Wong is a student uh, from New York. She's a Chinese-American, Sandra. And she's actually a student of Yafim. Oh, yeah. Daya. Yeah, Daya. I, don't, I can't pronounce Yafim's last name. <laughs> so I'll just say Yafim. Yafim G. He's like one of Dr. Wong's senior students. He's a brilliant practitioner. He's a very intelligent practitioner, too. Dr. Wong would always say, oh, he's, he has a good brain. He has a good brain. So Dr. Wang loves, uh, loves Yafim. I ended up going to uh, Dr. Wang's clinic for treatments. And that was my first exposure to meeting Dr. Wang and getting like acupuncture treatments in, in China. So I remember walking inside it and like, and the Dr. Wang just sitting down, feeling very comfortable in his clinic. Like it, it had a very like warm feel to it. He gives you this very comforting feeling. You have a lot of confidence in him. Like it's very good, I guess, bedside manners as a practitioner. So I just sat, uh, like, sat down. He gave me the checkup. He did the do 19 treatment on me. Tell us about the do 19 treatment. Do 19 is the point Dr. Wang uses to treat problems with like uh, neck issues or back problems because it's a very good point to relax um, all the muscles along the, along the spine. So Dr. Wang says it can treat problems related to the Taiyang channel, so like the Taiyang channel sinews, but also the do. Because the do vessel, part of its collaterals includes the Taiyang, the foot Taiyang channel. This is an interesting story is how Dr. Wang discovered this point. He went to the northeastern part of China once because a, a student had just opened up a clinic there and invited him to up there to treat patients. So when he went there, there's a patient came in with, he was like using this one arm crutch and walked into the clinic. He had a really big limp. And the, the patient said that he's recovering from stroke. So he had the stroke, but since he's recovered from the stroke, but the only issue is that he's, he has some um, sequela of the stroke, like mainly with his walking. And he said that it felt like on the bottom of his, it's either his right foot or left foot. I don't remember. It felt like there was this nail just stuck in the bottom of his, of his foot. So he knew that this patient had received like multiple treatments at other acupuncture clinics in, in the Northeast. If you've ever been to a hospital in China, you know, like when they, it's very common protocols just to stick a lot of needles <laughs> into the patient. And like, you know, they use so many different techniques, right? So um, Dr. I think he, because he knew this patient already received a lot of probably local needling or needling along probably the legs, you know, the yaming, all these points. So he was just like, okay, because he was already doing pal uh, palpation by that time. So he said, okay, I'll just palpate, start palpating the dupe and see what I find. Because he, he never knew it was a stroke. So he's like, you know, maybe there's something I can find on the head. So he's just started palpating the scalp, just working his way up the dew vessel. And then right around, once he got closer to the top of that, he felt, felt this really big lump at uh, what he later said was do 19. By the time he didn't know what it was, he was like, what is this thing? So, and when he pressed on it, he's like, is it sore? Is it sore? Like, swam, swam. And the, the patient was like, oh, yeah, my foot, it feels better. Like that nail, it's like, oh. The doctor was like, okay, well, I'll just 
needle this point and see what happens. So he needles. So whenever Doctor needles uh, scalp points, he rubs the needles like uh, he takes one part of his one thumb to press on the point where the needle was inserted, so where the the point is, acupuncture point is, and rubs the scalp downwards. It's kind of like massaging the point while the needle is in the point. And at the same time, he asks the patient to do certain movements to uh, like like for example, strain their back, and through that it helps like relax all the muscles on the dew vessel and and then the, the like the sinews of the dew vessel. You could say it helps raise the yang chi along the dew vessel upwards. And through that, you know, yang chi spreads outwards from the dew vessel, warming the, the surrounding muscles and tissues and all that all the way up. So then Dr. Nino, at that point, he had the patient strain his back and he's doing the rubbing technique. And he said, okay, stomp your foot. And so the patient was stomping his, like the foot that had like the, the, the feeling of a nail in it. And then after doing it, the patient was like, oh my God, the pain is gone. Doctor was so busy, like there are all these people lined up, stream patients. So he said, okay, just go outside and walk around, do a few laps, or just walk around the yard and then just come back in 20 minutes. So he's busy treating all these patients. And I'm like, the guy came back and then he was like waving the crutches in the air. And he was like, oh my God, I'm fine. I'm perfect. So then through that, then doctor was like, what is this point? Like, so then he had other patients and like similar kind of symptoms. So he started using it more and more. And then over time, he's, he's started treating it, using it to treat a lot of back pain. So I think at one point he was calling it like the back pain point. So he thought it was like a special point, like a, not part of like, you know, the normal, you know, channel points. So he's an extra point. So he started kneeling it on a lot of people and it started getting better and better. Then over time he started to realize, you know what? I actually think this point is do 19, holding. So then it like, so he goes in this huge discussion on how to properly locate the point and how to needle the point, you know, like stimulate point and how the patient should also do that kind of method that kind of technique to also strain their back while he's like uh, massaging the point and he uses it to treat a lot of patients from like patients with like back pain but it has to be related to the taiyang channel or the du so if it's like back pain or like neck pain related to the shaoyang then he might use other points like on the shaoyang channels so i remember once there's this guy from columbia who came in with like back pain and he's like oh i have this back pain for a few days i don't know what to do Not probably the channel is now taiyang channel changes the needle do 19 and then did the stimulating thing, had the patient strain his back. And then immediately he was like, oh, I feel so good. And the doctor said, stand up and, you know, move around. And then a the guy, he's like, I guess he's like Colombian, like South American. He started like shaking his <laughs> hips. <laughs> and he's like, oh, he's like so good. He was <laughs> dancing around the room. Yeah, dancing around. He was loving it. And then like he left. He's fine after. <laughs> wow. You know, this is such a great example of – you know, using your sense of inquiry first, putting your hands on somebody. It's like, what, you know, what's here? You know, what, anything going on here? And then finding something and well, you know, hey, there's something here. I, I wonder what this means. I wonder how we might be able to work with it. I mean, it's a great way to learn from your patients about how the body works and about how things show up. I think Dr. Ron always says that his greatest teachers are, are his patients. Like I remember there always be students would come here and like, Dr. Wan, who did you study with? And Dr. Wan would be like, you know, he did there while he was in school, he did study with, there were a lot of famous teachers at his school, but he always says like, you know, like his greatest teachers were like his patients. And then obviously he also did a lot of research of the classics, but it's like his patients were his greatest teachers. I'm sure a lot of people feel that the same way, right? Absolutely. That's totally the case. You know, the thing that I remember about Dr. Wang that was very endearing, and I so appreciate this about him. He'd run into things and he'd go, this, this wasn't working. And I remember him talking about like working with different things. He'd say, you know, it took me like 15 years to figure out that, you know, this, I didn't get good results doing, you know, whatever, X, Y, Z. 
you know, I think about it and think about it and I'd read and, you know, and then eventually I started to notice something in clinic and realize, oh yeah, actually this is, this is how you use this point or actually this, you know, you don't treat it this way, you treat it that way. And it would take him years to figure this stuff out, right? He was very transparent about that. Yeah, I loved it. I loved how he he loved the process of learning too, of like testing things out, figuring it out. But he wanted to have like complete, like I wouldn't say mastery of that point, but like a really strong familiarity of how to use that point or how to treat that specific disease. And then once he grasped it, had a good grasp of it, then he would start talking to me about it. But he would never talk about things if he just had a literal idea. Maybe he had like one treatment and it worked. He wouldn't be like, hey, guys, look what happened. Like, he would never brag about it. Like he wanted to get a really firm grasp of it before actually sharing his experiences with people. Yeah. Hello, everyone. Anne Cecil Sturman here. A working knowledge of the eight extraordinary channels from the unbroken oral tradition of acupuncture is valuable beyond words. The power of these channels is tremendous if the practitioner has well-integrated diagnostic, theoretical, and practical skill. You'll be familiar with Dumai, the governor channel, or the Sea of Yang, the primal reservoir of Yang, which ultimately finances all movement and growth. But this channel also governs the ability to self-determine. The psycho-emotional presentation of your patients can be matched to a classical activation of this channel, clearing impedance in the free flow of yang chi to body, mind, and spirit. I'd like to share with you the marvelous potency of the Do channel in a full-length live treatment video from the seminar I taught last year in Melbourne, Australia. It's at ancecilsturman.com forward slash sinews2024. Click on the jump to free teaching button or see the link on my Instagram page at ancecilsturman. Thanks, Michael. Back to you. So from the beginning for you, you have been working with a palpatory based type acupuncture. Is that, is that right? Yes. Yeah. Okay. Yes. So you were, you were learning from Dr. Wong at the same time you were going to like regular Chinese medicine school at some point. To backtrack again. So I, I remember when I, after that treatment, like I really liked the treatment Dr. Wong did on do 19 on me. I, I loved it so much that I, I went weekly for weekly treatments. And then I remember just sitting after like my treatment, I just sit in the waiting room, just listen to, to lecture to all these the, the American students that are there. So like I, that's when I met like Yafim, I met Jason, I met Nisa, like all these people. And like, it was a, a really amazing experience just to hear him lecture. And like, I didn't understand what he was really talking about, like the depth of it, like the theory. It was fascinating. And so then later I, I remember asking Dr. Wan, I was like, Dr. Wan, I'm interested in studying Chinese medicine. Do you think I can do it? And then he asked me one question. He immediately just asked me, how old are you? And I said, 26. And then he said, yeah, you can study it. (laughs) (laughs) I still don't know what he meant by that, but I was like, okay. And then he's like, so where do I go? Where should I go? He's like, go to the Beijing University of Chinese Medicine. That's where I went to school. So that's what I did. And I remember walking into the campus and being like, because it's a small campus, right? So I remember walking there. I was just like, I can't believe I'm going to be here for like five years. I remember he called me once, like before, right around the time the school started. He's like, okay. First study, study really hard your first year, get the foundations of Chinese medicine, like develop that good foundation Chinese medicine. And then after your first year, then you can come to my clinic and start studying with me. So that's what I did. 
How lucky for you. Yeah, I didn't know how lucky I was, though. Like, I'm so, like, ignorant of Chinese medicine. <laughs> I knew nothing. Because Dr. was, like, the first real Chinese medical doctor I met, right? So then I thought everyone did palpation. I thought everyone was, like, Dr. Ryan, very meticulous, you know, like, feel for points, you know, use these point-pair combinations. I thought that's all everyone practiced in China. So what was it like for you to be in, like, you know, a regular student clinic at the school where they didn't work that way? What was that like for you? When Dr. Wang was going to school, like the, his major was Chinese medicine, and then they studied everything, right? Like herbs, acupuncture, massage therapy, everything in a six-year program. But now in China, it's uh, differentiated into either you do herbs, like internal medicine, or you do uh, acupuncture and tuena. For each uh, field, you will study everything in Chinese medicine too, but there's just more of a focus, right? And in either herbs or acupuncture. So I ended up studying herbs. That was my major. So in the student clinic, when I was studying with uh, just following a lot of herbalists, like in the, the Goitang, they weren't like Dr. Wang, who's just like, he's very good at describing what he's doing, explaining. He loved teaching students, first of all. He loved explaining the theory, why he was doing what he was doing, and explaining it in a very clear way so that students could learn something. So I would go to the clinic and like, you know, they would just do pulse diagnosis mainly and, and then ask questions. And then they'd see a lot of patients, but then you would leave like not really knowing what just happened. Like I had no clue what I what was happening, but I thought it was interesting just to see patients. But I don't think I learned much those times during the the school clinic times. Mm -hmm. And you didn't have a, a huge amount of acupuncture training in the school. You were mainly doing herbs. You got your acupuncture from Doctor Wang. Yeah, I really enjoyed my experience at the Beijing University of Chinese Medicine. I thought getting the foundations in Chinese medicine was essential to actually understanding Chinese medicine. But then. At the same time, like finding as much time as I could to spend time with Dr. Wang, like I would go two, two times a week at first, sometimes three times a week, just I skip classes just to study with him. Because I realized, you know, like he's a very special doctor. That's why I realized the more I spent time with him. So I realized that was a very like unique time. And I thought that the time with him would be very limited too. So I was like, I got to take advantage of this. Because in my back of my mind, I thought I might go back to Canada eventually. So I have to like take advantage of this experience with him. But I thought it was a really good balance. Of, like I thought I needed what I was learning in school. But also, I it was really essential to study with Dr. Wang to get like to understand how to treat patients and how to diagnose patients. You know, it was, it was essential studying with them. Well, you know, in in a student clinic, it sounds like you were mostly in herb clinics. I was wondering what it would be like to be in an acupuncture clinic where maybe they're they've memorized patterns and they've memorized point protocols, and you know, that's what they do. When you study Chinese medicine. Uh, the universities here, you first, like for the first year or two, you're at the school clinic, the Goitang. So it's like um, outpatient kind of place, you know, this, you know, they very simple, just, you know, the, doc, the patients come in, the herbalist writes a, a prescription, and that's it. But the last few years of your training, you end up going to the hospitals more, the TCM hospitals. And that's a completely different thing, because then we end up, especially the last year or two, we're mainly in the inpatient wards. So in that case, it's mainly, a lot of it's like Western medicine and some Chinese medicine, depending on which doctor. But then once we, in our final year, once we start doing some rounds, like the last year and a half, we do rounds in the different departments of the hospital. So I think I spent like maybe two months or six weeks in an acupuncture outpatient department. And I thought it was really interesting. For me, it was interesting to see how they were treating patients. The teacher there, she was really nice and she had really good like needling techniques. At that time, I already spent like three or four years with Dr. Wong. So I thought it was interesting just to see how she was diagnosing, just using more like Zongfu diagnosis. How was that for you? Were there, were there some things that you learned that were useful? I just like seeing patients. Like I think it's just very useful as a student to be exposed to as many patients as possible. 
and just to see what other people are trying and to see if it works or not. Um, I thought it was interesting what you're seeing. Like, you know, if a patient with uh, like poor sleep and then you think it's like, like heart and kidney is not communicating, then you use like heart seven, uh, kidney three or something like that. Or it was interesting from that point of view to use like uh, zonfu diagnosis and not using any palpation. And, but, you know, for if they have patients with like, facial paralysis, they would use points according to, you know, the channel pathways. One thing I remember very clearly, though, like why you should use uh, channel palpation and why channel palpation is very useful in a clinical setting. Because in the hospitals, Chinese patients, especially the older, like if you're in Beijing or if you have the Beijing Huko, you can get, uh, you have healthcare, right? The free healthcare. Or it covers like the national healthcare, which covers a large percentage of your, your treatments. So people could come for frequent treatments, like like daily. Some people come every two days. One lady would come every day for her like needle and then bagua, like they would do cupping on her. But there's this one lady, I remember, she's coming every day for shoulder treatment, shoulder pain, like frozen shoulder. And for like two weeks, for the entire two weeks, I was there like every day. And then I thought like this treatment must be working so well, like because she's coming every day. So I asked her like by like the second week, I was like, how's your shoulder? And she's like, that's the same. I was like, you mean it's better? She's like, no, it's exactly the same as it was when she first went it's there. exactly the same. Nothing changed. Yeah, nothing changed. <laughs> and then that floored me. I was just like, what? Because the doctor, like every time the patient would come in, like because the, the doctor was really busy, right? She'd be talking to the patient and then needling the patient, like all pretty simultaneously. It was like, like her diagnosis was occurring within like a minute or two minutes. Like it was so quick. The patient was lying down. She's like, oh, you have this, this, how is this? How's your sleep today? Okay, how's that? Boom, boom, boom. And then like, uh, so this patient with the shoulder pain, I was like, oh my God. Because like by that time I studied like three or four years with Dr. Wang. I was like, if this was Dr. Wang, he would have known within like within two to three treatments if the treatment's not working he would have the channels and rethunk his uh his approach change his approach and then probably would use other points or other channels so I, that was shocking for me actually yeah well you know it's useful to get a a different point of view that way isn't it yeah it was i think i was lucky like the doctor i followed with it at that uh, school hospital was i thought she was actually very nice and it was i learned a little bit i think I know there were other doctors there that did other techniques where they would just needle points along the entire, like if it's a yaming channel issue, they would needle like the majority of the yaming channel points, just like a line of needles along the yaming channel. But I don't know the theory behind it, but. I don't know. That sounds a little bit like carpet bombing. Yeah, 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 yeah. <laughs> but then I just, then I, you know, the more I was exposed to other clinical practitioners, the more I realized how. Lucky I was to be yeah. studying with Dr. Wall. Yeah, you sort of lucked out. How do you go about developing a palpatory language? How do you go about getting your hands on people and learning to make sense of what you're feeling? I mean, this, is, this isn't something that you pick up in a book. This is something that you pick up in your own experience and being able to pay attention in a particular kind of way. How do you go about developing that kind of thing? So the way I learned it was mainly just through just like observation, just spending time with Dr. Wong. I think you just, somehow you absorb it <laughs> over time. Like you see him treat so many patients that you absorb certain things and you, you realize what he's paying attention to when he's palpating the channels. And then like over time, you know, this was like a nine year period of time that things start to make more sense over time. And that's when you, once you start applying it in your own clinic, then things start to click a bit more. The first thing, first step is to just understand what are channels, right? And then once you have to understand what channels are, and then you just start to palpate in those spaces that Dr. Wan talks about. He likes to call them the channels are in the, the funksy, like in the, the crevices and the spaces between the different tissues. So as long as you're palpating in those like channel spaces, 
and you put all of your attention into like your, we use our thumbs when we publish, onto the tips of your thumbs. Over time, like the more you do it, you'll end up quite immediately too. A lot of people, can, you can start feeling changes, right? Like nodules or like lumps or like sticks or like grainy feelings. What's great about Jason's book that he did with Dr. Wong is just reading about the channel chi transformation and just continuously reading about channel chi transformation and what happens when there's a pathology. And then you start to see different patterns, I think. Hello, this is Jason Robertson. I hope you're enjoying the show. As I said earlier, I want to talk a bit about one particular area that you can palpate to get some insights into low back pain patients. Uh, as some of you may know, if you've seen the book that I worked on, Applied Channel Theory, with my teacher Wang Juyi, there's a lot in there about palpating the distal channels to get information about things that are upstream in the body. And often with low back pain patients, for me, I have difficulty differentiating between Taiyang and Shaoyang type, especially those two for low back pain, hip pain patients. I think you know what I mean. And so I'm palpating down on the distal foot, you know, between bladder 65 going back towards bladder 62. And in this area, I want to say just a bit about one point at the moment, UB63. And on quite a few patients with back pain, you'll find what feels like a road bump there. Like your thumb will go over a thickening kind of a, what Dr. Wong called a jielu, so a, a collateralized nodule there. But it's a road bump is another way to put it. And it will almost always be on the same side as their complaint. When you find that, then take your hand up and check their sacroiliac joint in that area. And if those two are lining up, then you're probably on to a tie type back pain. So if that kind of information is interesting to you, we have lots more like that in the book that Dr. Wang and I worked on, Applied Channel Theory in Chinese Medicine, and that comes from Eastland Press, and you can get it at their website. So uh, I hope you enjoy the rest of the show. I love hearing Michael ask his curious questions, and let's get back to his infectious curiosity. Yeah. So for those who don't have the benefit of having hung out with Dr. Wong and maybe want to start introducing some channel palpation into their work, talk to us a little bit about how, how they might get started. I mean, you were talking about really knowing what a channel is and then how you approach it with your hands. Could you give us kind of a uh, channel palpation 101 from, from your point of view? Like I've encountered so many students, like people who have been using Dr. Wong's techniques. Some people would read Jason's book and then they would start trying it out in their clinical practice. And some people, I think they're, they did figure some things out about how to do palpation. They did a good job. Like, but a lot of people, they would end up taking like seminars with Jason or with like Yathim or like Nisa or any of the other students. Because usually when we do these seminars, we do like hands-on kind of practice. Really teaching you how to feel the uh, palpation because I think that's very useful. Like what I found that when I was studying this, just having Dr. Wong like tell me like this is an audio and like feel it, and then you feel it and you're like ah, then you, it makes sense. First, the most important thing is to understand what are channels. Like we have to understand what are these spaces that we're palpating because I think in Chinese medicine, at least when I was in school, I had some teachers that said channels do not exist. Right, they're just a name. Like recently, I met a bunch of doctors and I asked what are channels, and they're like. Oh, there, you know, this is a place where chi and blood flows. And then I said, so um, can you feel these channels? They're like, no, 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 no. You can't feel the channels. Then how do you know that there are places where chi and blood flows? Like, where is the chi and blood flowing? There's just an abstract concept. 
And then I just started talking, well, you know, based on Dr. Wan's understanding of the, the you know, channels, based, which is based on what he, like from his readings of the classics, like the Neijing, the Ling Shu, you know, you know, we say that the channels are in the spaces. So once you get this idea, it's a very simple concept. Channels are in the spaces. So once you start putting your hands, your, you can use, some people like using their index fingers. We always use our thumbs. Once you start gliding your fingers into those spaces and just going up it, and just like a same, like an even uh, pressure, just gliding up along the channel space, you can start feeling certain changes. And it's fascinating because over time, like the more you do it, you start to recognize certain patterns. Like you realize, for example, uh, when you're palpating along the lung channel, like obviously like people with like lung channel changes, they might have problems with like respiratory issues, right? Like cough or things like that. But some people we find like if you feel a lump around lung six, not everyone, but some people, if you feel a lung, a, uh, a lump around lung six, sometimes they have like hemorrhoids. Like the patient might never tell you about that. But once you feel that lump, sometimes I ask the patient, do you have hemorrhoids? And they're like, oh yeah, 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 I do. I just had a patient today where I asked Lord where that happened. Like she was like, yeah, I'm like, I'm pretty healthy overall. I just had poor sleep. And I palpate her channel, so she had changes on every channel. <laughs> so then once, while you're palpating, you start to feel more changes. And then you can start asking like related questions and then you get confirmation. So it was quite interesting. Like, for like that patient, she had all these lung channel changes, but you know, this big lump at lung six. And I was like, oh, so do you have hemorrhoids? She's like, yeah, 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 I have hemorrhoids. And like feeling changes along her, like for example, pericardium channel and like a big lump around uh, PC4. I was like, do you have a feeling of pressure in your chest? Oh yeah, yeah, I have pressure in my chest. So you always feel these really interesting things that like it really makes like the theory of Chinese medicine much easier to understand. That's why I found like once you start palpating people. Because actually you feel like, like a person has like spleen deficiency and then at spleen three, you can feel like often, sometimes it's like a deep, like empty depression. Some people might have a little nodule there. And that's fascinating if you find that. I mean, these are fascinating things. And I was talking to Jason the other day, and he he was mentioning how when you're down at the feet, if you palpate around UB63 and you find he calls it a speed bump, often there's an issue in the sacroiliac joint, right? You can ask about uh, back pain and that kind of thing. So it, it sounds like you've got a number of places where you'll you'll palpate, you'll go, oh, there's something here. And for you, that means something, right? The lung six with the hemorrhoids, pericardium six, chest pressure. Are there any other, I would say, you know, big heavy hitter things that like stand out to you? Oh, if you feel this, inquire about that. But Dr. Wild always says when we do pal channel palpation, usually we palpate like, for, it's for diagnosis. So when we're doing that, we're, we usually are palpating from, for example, the arms, like on this, the hand in channels, we palpate usually just from the source points to the hussy points. So from like lung nine to lung five. But the yang channels, uh, we usually palpate further down, for example, on from large intestine uh, three, and we'll palpate up to large intestine 11. On the feet, usually we palpate, like for example, the spleen channel from like spleen three up to spleen nine, like the liver channel from liver two up to liver eight. So usually we go, the furthest we go is up to the, to the elbows and knees. What Dr. Wan says, he says, sometimes some people try to focus too much on each individual change. And what he likes to do, he likes to look at things like big picture. So, for example, say you palpate a person's channels and they only have lung channel changes and spleen channel changes. He'll step, step back and think, for example, how is like the channel change transformation of the, the lung and spleen, like the tying channel system? How is this related to the patient's uh, condition? So I'll give an example. Like recently I had a patient who was from France. She was a horseback riding coach. She's been a horseback riding coach for like 30 years. And she, she looks like a cowboy. Like she had like strong hands, like huge hands. Like, 
and like just the way she walked like you could tell she like spent a lot of time spends a lot of time outdoors like really strong lady and then uh but she had all these joint pains right like shoulder pain you know knee pain ankle pain so even though i was treating her the joint pain she had at the same time i palpated her, her channels and she had all these like lung channel changes and spleen channel changes i was like so i was asking questions that we usually ask so like oh like uh, do you have bloating? You know, like, cause we say the tying channels related to dampness, right? So when I found all these like channels, like, do you have bloating in your stomach? She's like, no. Do you have heaviness in your legs? No. So all these symptoms, like, then like, what could her problems be related? Why are these, she has, why does she have all these like tying channel changes? Like, like all these lumps, like from like spleen six all the way to spleen nine. So like, why does she have that? So then I asked, cause we know that the tying channel, it's related to, in terms of the external climactic chi. The, I get, how do they say it in English? The, the little chi? The, so the climactic chi? Yeah, the climactic chi. Or environmental chi? Yep. Or some people say environmental chi too? Yeah, I, I think you could say it either way. Okay. So we know that the tying channels relate to dampness, So which was interesting. So that was like, okay, so you, you've you been living in France all your life. So which city are you living in? And she mentioned it. And it's like, what's the climate there like? And she says, it's very damp. And she's like, and she said, it's unbearably damp. Mm-hmm. And then she said, and I was like, oh, really? And they said, when it gets really damp, then all of her joint pain gets worse. Imagine that. Yeah. So that, for me, that was awesome. I was like, that's perfect. So then, like, it just shows that, like, you know, the tiny channel, we say it, it regulates dampness in the body. And for me, that just confirms so much of what we they say in the classics. Yeah. So, so in this case, it wasn't her digestive system necessarily. It's just a systemic issue with dealing with dampness happens to settle in her joints. Yeah. Yeah. And we have a Facebook page. Jason shared uh, one of his clinical cases about treating a person with um, edema in the legs and then using like yaming channel points to treat that. But, you know, usually when we see people with edema in the legs and we think it's a tying channel, it's very clearly related to dampness, right? Like it's actually you can physically feel and see the dampness. And if you palpate the channels, you can feel changes too on like the tying channels. So in that case, it can be very clear too, right? So like there's so many things with uh, uh, channel palpation that you can find that uh, once you think like big picture, I recommend, like if you say, for example, tiny channels related to dampness, like it's related to water metabolism. So if you ever see any patients with problems with like water metabolism, one of the channel systems you can consider is the tying channel. But we need to confirm, is it actually the tying channel that's involved? And we confirm through palpation. Right. Because it could be the kidney channel or it could be the urinary bladder channel. I mean, there's different. Right, right. Yeah. So it's, it's a way of dialing in where is that edema coming from? And then if you start thinking like what illnesses can be related to dampness and it's like a huge range of them, right? Like from skin disorders to like edema to like, you know, like bloating, we say to digestion issues to like, um, like so many things that we can find like gynecological issues, like so many things. But then at the same time, like you're asking earlier is that sometimes like over time, the more you palpate, then over time you, based on your clinical experience, you start to notice certain patterns, like certain things just stick out a bit more at certain points. I wouldn't say it's like a, like a direct relationship, but sometimes you'll find that, oh, for example, Dr. Wong says the heart channel is related to the um, endocardium and the valves of the heart. So like the mitral valve and tricuspid valves and also like the, um, the conductivity of the heart. So sometimes we notice like people, if they have like, like a problem with like the mitral valve, like mitral valve, like stenosis or like it's not like regurgitation, it's not closing properly. Sometimes you can feel like changes at like the heart seven area or something. Yeah, I've heard of people that do certain kinds of pulse diagnosis. They'll diagnose it through the pulse, which is right right in that area. So like those are like well, sometimes we'll just palpate that and like 
the patient might not tell you about this issue with their heart, but then once you feel that, you're like, why do you have this like really thick thing here? And then, then you ask, well, do you have a problem with like your heart? And like, oh yeah, yeah. I'm like, you know, you know, I like rheumatoid uh, arthritis and like the heart, like when I was younger and a lot, I have mitral. So it's quite, it's quite fascinating. Yeah. So you said when you're palpating in that area, it's kind of thicker. I've been a camera patient with this issue for a while, but yeah, sometimes it felt like a thicker kind of uh, like stick. Yafim doesn't like to use the word uh, terminology stick. He likes to call it more like spaghetti or a noodle, like a thick noodle in that area. I'm, I, actually, my dad, who has like um, in the heart muscle, he has like a hole like in the in between the two chambers, two of the chambers in the heart muscle. So he actually has a, like that kind of stick, like a thick stick actually on his PC7. And Dr. One says uh, the pericardium channel is related to the cardiac muscles. Yeah, especially right there by the wrist, it sounds like. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So but I think over time, you start to pick up things like just like, for example, some people uh, specialize more in treating certain issues. Like Dr. Wang has a student here, an apprentice here, uh, Dr. Wang Humin, and she specializes in doing treating children with uh, channel theory, channel massage. So she has picked up so many, so much like information, like uh, knowledge, I've just just based on her like, experience of treating patients with, like, for example, constipation, respiration. And she, she, you start to see the different patterns. Like, if you were to treat a hydrogen, like, um, constipation, I think over time you start to feel similar changes on the channels. And gradually you start to develop an understanding of what these changes might be. So it sounds like what's helpful is just put your hands on people, continually put your hands on people, pay attention, look for patterns. Yeah. And also just continually read about like what channel theory is, like what is channel chief transformation? One thing I, I like to do, like much, whether I have nothing to do, like if I'm just walking around or I'm in like the bus or like somewhere, like you start to think about like we talked about the Taiyin channel system, the Drain channel system, the Shaoyang channel system, like the Yaming, Shaoyang, Taiyang. So when, when, once you start thinking about the, the channels, like channel systems, and you, what I like to do is start to start thinking about why are the lung channels and spleen channels put into the Taiyin channel system? Why is the pericardium channel and liver channel paired into the drain channel system? And, and so on and so forth. And then once you start to understand why they're put together, why they have this kind of synergistic relationship, I think things start to make a bit more sense, especially clinically and also helping you to interpret your, what you're finding based on palpation. In recent years, the Sa'am acupuncture style has generated significant interest and a loyal and growing following. In the Sa'am approach, a precise diagnosis leads to a four-needle treatment to address the five-element and six-chi imbalances in the body. The four needles target the controlling and generating cycles. It's common using this method for the needle sensation to be stronger than in many other styles. Thus, the choice of needle becomes important. The Unico brand of needles lends itself to both strong and gentle techniques. These superior needles are made of uncoated Japanese surgical stainless steel and feature the best guide tube on the market with its unique beveled edge. Additionally, Unico needles have a tensile property that helps with freehanding needles into Jingwell points and allows you to more easily feel the arrival of chi. Blue Poppy is the exclusive importer and distributor of Unico needles. Use the code QI. 2024 to save 10% off Unico needles at www.bluepoppy.com. You'll be glad you did. So when you talk about 
channel chi transformation. And you're talking, I mean, when I hear you say things like the Taiyin, the Jiayin, the Yangming, that kind of thing, I mean, you're basically talking about, you know, what here in English we think of as like the six levels or the six confirmations. So when you say you're thinking about channel chi transformation, what do you mean by that? What do you mean about the transformation between these different levels? What are you thinking about? So I'll just, again, I'll go back to the Tai-In channel system. So like when Dr. Wan talks about the, you know, the channels, like he, he says the channels cannot be separated from their related song or fu organ, right? Like they're inseparable. Like the, the, the channels help carry out the functions of the, the organ. So the Zongfu organs are the source, whereas the, uh, the channel systems are where like the, all the physiological processes occur in the body. So like, for example, let's talk about the tying channel system. Like, how do we understand what the system is? For example, we say the lung. What does the lung do? We say it governs qi. And we know that through respiration, like moving qi outwards and downwards helps regulate the movement of qi outwards and downwards. At the same time, we say that the, the lung channel, like Dr. Warren loves to say, it governs the rhythms of the body. How does it govern the rhythms? It's probably also through its functions of respiration. And I think that's why, you know, like qigong works so well. Because it helps regulate like, all the organs, right? Like, I, there are probably people who practice qigong, and then, like, while they're doing it, suddenly, like, you know, their their stomach starts to gurgle, right? It starts to make noises. Or like, uh, Dr. Ron would have patients, and they would have like um, heart palpitations, and sometimes he would not use the heart channel, but instead, if he found a change at lung nine, and he thought it was related to the lung channel, he might just use lung nine to treat the heart palpitations, and that's related to the lungs' uh, relationship with regulating the rhythms of the body. Whereas the spleen, though, the spleen channel, we say that it regulates, you know, the transportation and transformation, right? It takes, like, the nutrients that the stomach absorbs and helps to spread these nutrients throughout the body. But then how does it spread these nutrients throughout the body? It requires, like, the lung chi. So the lung chi, it helps move all these nutrients throughout the body to the skin, to the muscles, to all the different organs. So they have this very close kind of synergistic relationship. So what happens if there's something with, like, lung chi? deficiency or spleen chi deficiency so there's a problem with like um the water metabolism so problem with like regulating dampness in the body then that can lead to a lot of issues and a lot of, like for example we were saying earlier like edema to like eczema to like you know respiratory issues to like bloating to uh, all these things even some uh, gynecological issues like amenorrhea things like that when you palpate you find changes on these channels and then you can regulate the tying channel help with this movement of like moving lung chi and through that also moving like, you know, the spleen nutrients throughout the body too. And then once you help the tiny child regain its balance, then, you know, things seem to fall into place in general. Yeah. Any of the channels you could apply this kind of thinking to, you could apply this sort of inquiry to. Definitely. Definitely. Cause then what's like, what I find is so useful is that once you start to like understand or try to think about like why they're in the system together and pair it together in the system, it helps so much. Uh, clinically, it's so useful, but it takes time. Like I would say that it took me a number of years to actually really understand it. And you have to use it on your patients. What helped with me actually, like um, like studying with Dr. Wong for all the like the like four or five years at first, and then like Lee May, Lee May and I, one of Dr. Wong's other uh, American students, we helped him on compiling a bunch of his case studies. So analyzing those case studies was very useful for me. Like once I started actually sitting down writing about these case studies, like why Dr. Wong selected those points, why did he select those channels, then things start to click a bit more. Yeah, the case studies are great. So the Jiayin channel, to me, is a little mysterious. 
it, I mean, it's one of those channels where I kind of look at it and I, and I kind of come up in my head and I kind of go tilt. I mean, it's one of those things that's just, I don't know. I haven't really dialed it in. I know. I know. I totally know what you mean. Totally know what you mean. Yeah. Yeah. So I'd love to get your riff on the Dre In channel in the way that you just talked about the tie-in channel. Of course, granted, your idea about it may change as you get more clinical experience, but I'd love to get your take on it. Okay. At, at this moment in time. Okay. You know, this is also based on, you know, all the discussions with Dr. Ron, all the lectures from Dr. Ron. So I'll simplify it very briefly. So the drain channel, we say it's related to the pericardium and the liver, right? It's a pericardium channel, liver channel together. So the pericardium, it's very important. Like, how does Dr. Wong understand what the pericardium channel is or what is the pericardium itself? So this is also, again, where it goes back to what you're, you keep on mentioning. You have to put your hands on your patients and start feeling things. So over time, Dr. Wong started to realize that the pericardium channel is related to the muscles of the heart and also related to the coronary heart vessels. So that's once he, he started having this understanding of the heart, like the pericardium as related to the heart muscles and related to the coronary heart vessels, that really changed his understanding of how, I think, how the drain channel works. Because then there's another saying in like the uh, chapter 10 of the spiritual pivot, the Ling Shu, where they say that uh, the pericardium governs illnesses related to the vessels in the body. So Dr. Wan, like he would just say, okay, so the pericardium, we say it's related to the heart muscles. And then, okay, so if it, the pericardium is related to treating problems with the vessels, then we could say the pericardium is related to this whole blood vessel system in the body. I remember a long time ago, I went to, the, in Beijing, there's this uh, Museum of Natural History. And there's this whole like, like uh, warehouse of like, of like just anatomy. And they have one like, you know, specimen, on, I guess you could call it a specimen of like just a body with no skin, no muscles, no bones, no nerves, and just the blood vessels. I just had that picture in my mind. I was like, oh, and that maybe is that the pericardium channel system? Does that include that? So what is the liver then? The liver channel system. What is the liver? So for him, the liver is a place like we always say it stores blood, right? But for Dr. Wong, it's not like a passive storage of blood. What happens when the blood enters the, the liver, it is purified, it's like filtered and purified, and it's detoxified. And then we say the liver, because it's the general, has to then assign that blood to all parts of the body. And how does that blood get transported throughout the body? It needs the pericardium. Through the pericardium. Yeah. It needs the heart, the yeah. beating of the heart, the pumping of the heart to just force it throughout the body. What's even more fascinating is when Dr. Wen starts talking about the Sanjiao, right? The, the Shaoyang. Why is the Shaoyang related to the drain? The drain channel is more related to, like, we could say the purification of the filtering of blood, you know, the maintaining the quality of blood, but also moving the blood throughout the body. But at the same time, it's an inter-exterior relationship with the Shaoyang. Dr. Wang's understanding of the Shaoyang is more related to his understanding of the Sanjiao triple burner, right? So for Dr. Wang, I'll just say it very simply that uh, for him, his understanding of the Sanjiao, that he believes it's related to a lot of the membranes in the body, like all the different connective tissues, all these different membranes. I guess people right now are really excited in the TCM world about talking about the interstitium. So maybe that's, that could possibly be included in the Sanjiao system. I don't want to say anything uh, clear, clear cut about that. In Chinese medicine, we say that Sanjiao is also the, like the pathway for source qi, right? And the source qi originates from the kidney, and then it has two pathways. It either goes to the taiyang, to the exterior of the body, or it goes through the Sanjiao and transfers throughout the body. For Dr. Wang, he always says, okay, so the Sanjiao is related to the membranes. He, and he was like, he always asks the, the students when they were listening to this class, he'd be like, so where are the membranes? The membranes are everywhere, right? They're over around all of the, the muscles, around all the different tissues in the body. So if this is where Qi is going, 
just imagine again, like memories going all throughout, all throughout all parts of the body, all crevices in the body. But at the same time, we talk about the dreams related to, uh, like the pericardium is related to the, the blood vessels, right? We can say the shayang is related to like the chi, movement of chi in the body, whereas the drain is related to like the circulation of blood, but also the maintenance of blood in the body. So that's why we can say why the drain and shayang are paired together is kind of like a chi and blood kind of uh, relationship. Totally makes sense when you listen to it that way, doesn't it? You know, this is over the countless discussions with Dr. Wan, seeing him using clinics, analyzing his cases, and then on my own treating patients, not knowing what was going on, but just trusting what I was doing with palpation. And over time, you gather all this information and you start seeing the patterns. Like you start saying, oh, this is a patient, you know, like we say the drains relate to circulation of blood, right? Maintenance of blood. But then what are some of the main illnesses we see related to the drain is like blood stagnation, right? Or blood deficiency, right? And what's interesting when we talk about the drain, I forgot to mention, is that we say the drain relates to which environmental chi is it related to? It's related to wind. But usually when we talk about wind, in the clinical setting, usually wind is related to like the taiyang or taiyin, right? Rarely do we see like external wind related to the, the drain, I think. No. No, we think we think of it more as an internal wind that comes from the drain. Right. Right, right, right. So then that's what Dr. Ross says. Like, but clinically, we see that uh, wind is usually yeah, internal wind in the drain. So maybe we could say sometimes blood deficiency, right? So people have like ticks or twitches or you know things like that, or like moving pain, like that wind pain. It's quite interesting. So like with all, a lot of the illnesses we see related to the drain, a lot of times it could be like blood deficiency or blood stagnation. Uh, and even like a lot of patients, Dr. Ryan also mentioned a lot of patients with like varicose veins. He believes that the root of the problem with varicose veins is related to the drain channel system. Because of blood stagnation? Yeah, like just the blood is not circulating properly. Or he also says that what we're saying earlier, right? Like the pericardium is related. It's the pump, like it moves the blood. So the blood is not moving properly in the body. At the same time, we said the pericardium was related to the vessels in the body. Dr. Wall also believes, you know, like we say that the the liver governs the sinews in the body. So you could kind of almost see like these these blood vessels, kind of like a sinew too, like the varicose veins too, like, like the valves in it. So he says it's related to, you know, like the blood stagnation too. Wow. How, so how would he treat varicose veins? So the varicose vein patients we've, I saw him treat, there may be not too many, like three or four. Uh, so a lot of people, we had, they'd have symptoms related to the varicose veins. So sometimes they have problems of like swelling in the legs, like their legs would feel very heavy and swelling. So Dr. Wang was not a proponent of just bleeding the, the blood vessels. Because I think in China, it's very popular. There's some places where they just have people just stand on like newspaper and they just bleed all of the, the varicose veins, the like engorged veins, and just let it, the blood just trickle down the legs. Dr. Wan thinks that doesn't treat the root of the problem. So for his patients, he would use like, depending on palpation, again, it goes back to palpation. I remember very clearly there are two patients. So one patient he found based on palpation, he had varicose veins for a number of years, and Dr. Wan mainly used the drain channel system or drain channel points, and the patient had drain channel changes. So I think he used points like liver eight, and PC3. He might have used liver 3-2 or liver 5. I don't remember. But it was he would use like uh, same name channel point pair combinations like PC3 and liver 8 probably is the main point pair combination he would use to help regulate the drain channel system, help move the blood in the body. And the patient over time, he got much better. Like he used to like take a plane and he'd have so much pain in his legs or he'd go to like a place of high altitude. He went like Tibet or Qinghai and he had pain. Like he wouldn't be able to walk for a long period of time. But after those streams, he was fine. But like the varicose veins were still there. Like you could see that there were still varicose veins there. And the doctor did say, they said, if this patient continues their treatments, 
because the patient felt so much better. The symptoms bothering him were improved. He's like, I'll use like fire needling on these, these veins. But unfortunately, I never saw him use that <laughs> for that. Another patient, though, also had varicose veins. And her main issue was also like bloating, heaviness in the legs. But she had mainly tying and drain channel symptoms or uh, channel changes. So he used like, again, PC3 liver 8 as a main point pair combinations, but he added spleen 9. And again, her symptoms, that heaviness in the legs also got much better too. Uh, recently, I treated a patient also with varicose veins, like, and he actually had like one of those like um, ulcers, like varicose ulcers on his like ankle around like liver 4 area. And he had it for about two years. He was getting Western medical treatment, but then he, it was related to like his varicose veins. He, like he had varicose veins for a number of years. Like he was always going to very cold climate. So his blood circulation was really bad. So I remember I was just like palpation again, his main liver channel changes. He also had signs of like, we would say blood stagnation or like stagnation in the drain channel. And one very common symptom of if you have like stagnation in like the drain channel, sometimes stagnation can lead to heat. If there's heat, it can lead to irritability or anger. So he had a lot of anger too. Like it had, the tip of his tongue was red. His entire tongue was like purple. So I just thought that's like blood stagnation. So I just use, based on palpation, I use like PC3 and liver eight as the main points. And I added like liver five too. And over the course of the treatments, like uh, like once a week for a month or two, a month or so, like six weeks, he's like, oh, my legs don't feel as bloated anymore. They actually shrunk in size. Like they used to feel like we were all like, oh my God. And like even the color of his legs had changed. They're always, at first they're always this kind of like pasty yellow look. And then over time it just became more pale, like his normal complexion. And then also he was like, and look, look at my foot. And we all looked at his foot. He's like, and in the past, like the, the veins, like the normal veins on his feet, like you couldn't see them. But over the course of the treatments, they started to appear. So for me, that was an amazing, I was like, oh my God, like Dr. Wong was right. Like my goal in my clinical practice now is to like, just prove everything I learned with Dr. Wong is right. And then like just testing it out and testing it out. And then each time I do that, I'm like, oh my God, like I'm getting, I'm reproducing what Dr. Wong is doing. And for me, that shows like, this is working. This stuff works. It works well. And then it, it lays a foundation so as you continue to gather clinical experience, you'll find things on your own. I mean, we all do, right? So things that show up again and again, and we go, wait a minute, I, I've seen this. Like there are two things. So what I remember when Dr. Wong was talking about his clinical practice, like when he first started studying Chinese medicine, started using Chinese medicine, at first he was treating patients based on the textbook methods, you know, the protocols. Then once he found that it wasn't that effective, he started going back to the classics. He started memorizing a lot of those acupuncture poems. And then over time, like those, those point pair combinations and those poems were useful, but not always useful. But he's like, there's something missing. Like maybe my diagnosis is not correct. Then he went further back to the classics. And then he started reading about, you know, channel theory, channel palpation, all this stuff. And then he, he said in the 1960s, early 60s, he published one article for his hospital about the treatment of migraines. This one was like in his mid 20s or something. But after that, he never wrote for like a 20 year period. He didn't publish anything else. Because all he did was he, he just focused up for 20 years, just researching and developing applied channel theory. And then once he had this firm grasp of it, he said, okay, now I can, like, I'm confident that this works and I'm going to, I can share this with people. So like, that's how patient he was to do that is amazing. Because in modern society, I don't think people would do that, right? No, you know, I think so often you want to go to a weekend workshop and then on Monday you're like almost a master. You know, I mean, when I hear you talk about Dr. Wong doing this, and, and I've heard some of these stories too and some of the time that I've sat with him, 
I mean, for me, it's very inspirational because Dr. Wong became a master, but he became a master by being a really hardworking journeyman for a long, 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 long time. You work it and, and you look at the stuff that doesn't work yet and and you go back and you try to puzzle it over. And yeah, you don't get it in a weekend and you don't get it in a year. In fact, maybe you start to dial it in after a decade. This, you know, it takes a long time to learn this stuff. It definitely does. I remember I was talking to Dr. Wang's uh, wife recently. We call her Shimu. She's just, he always, she always loves telling us, you know, you know, Dr. Wang, he never watched it one TV show in his life. The moment you go home, like he would just start reading. Like he was always reading. He always was reading something. And then she said, like, at night when they put the kids to bed, like if they lived in a really small apartment, um, he had two children, uh, has two children. And he didn't have like an office to study in. So he would take this like cutting board and put it over the sink and then pull out his books and just sit there oh, all night just, read, just reading and researching, writing <laughs> all into like the, you know, the early hours of the morning. Yeah. He like another student, she always has retells this story too. She's like, Dr. Wang always told me that before going to bed, he'd have his book and he'd be lying down reading a book. And then at first, he, you know, he's just going to read and then go to sleep. But then he'd read something and he'd get more fascinating, more interested in the book. So then he'd sit up in the bed. And then uh, gradually he'd sit on the edge of the bed and gradually move to his desk and just <laughs> just keep on reading until like three, four in the morning. And that was his day. And then he'd like go to sleep for a few hours, go back to work and like and repeat. Just like that curiosity in his mind and like never just always fascinated by it. And I think Jason mentioned this also in like in your discussion with him, like that even up till then, like he was still thinking about Chinese medicine all like constantly. Like that was him. That was his life, his passion. Yeah. Well, I appreciate you taking the time today to share some of your experience, your clinical experience, and, and your experience getting to study with this, you know, amazing teacher that we had. It's so sad that he's gone. And we're so lucky to, you know, have had the time with him that we did. There's one thing I want to add was that like, if it's not working, like if what I'm doing clinically is not working, I never blame the theory. I never blame palpation or I never blame channel theory. I always blame myself for not properly understanding it. So then what I say is I have to like, maybe my approach is wrong. So I reevaluate my approach and I repalpate the channels. Then I realized that if you really stick to it over time with like each individual patient over time, if they're patient with you too, you know, over time you can figure it out. And palpation is like your guide in the clinic. It'll eventually help you figure it out. It's great advice. John, thank you so much yeah, no for problem. hanging out with me today. I'm I'm inspired to get to clinic this afternoon. And uh, <laughs> I mean, I always love getting my hands on people anyway, but it's just, it's so wonderful to be able to have a conversation like this and, and just be reminded and reinvigorated about it. I don't know if you know this, but like in August 5th is the one year anniversary of Dr. Wong's passing. Yeah, it's, it's crazy that's already been a year. And it's, you know, it's inspiring for me that Dr. Wang's knowledge can still be passed on to future generations and that people are still interested in studying this. One of the last few conversations I had with Dr. Wang is one of his fears. He actually told me, he's like, I'm afraid that, you know, after, you know, that this will not continue, like, like his legacy will not continue. And I kept on telling him, I was like, don't worry, Dr. Wang, like there are people who want to study this. People will learn this. And then he felt, he's like, just not as says, like, okay. <laughs> That's great. Well, you're part of that and I appreciate your efforts. Okay, thanks. And uh, yeah, thanks again. It was, a, it was nice talking to you. Um, hopefully we can have more conversations in the future. I think we're going to need to do this again. <laughs> Maybe we could do it on the, you were saying at the temple where uh, Badachu, we could have like a cup of tea. You could bring your microphone. 
and we'll just sit on like this temple and just talk. I love it. Let's get that figured out. Thanks as always for listening. If you liked this conversation, if you learned something new or found a moment of inspired insight, share the episode with your friends. If you want to support Geological, there's just one way to do that. It's by going to the website and becoming a member or leaving a one-time contribution today. Well, folks, that's it for today. Join us again next Tuesday for another conversation that connects up the voices of our community.